0: Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, NightSkyTourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. For most people, knowing what's visible in the night sky and when doesn't register on their list of important things to know. Our Google calendars have replaced the need to know the current moon phase, it's made it unnecessary to track landmarks to anticipate the solstices or the equinoxes, and it's made us forget how to use the constellations and certain stars to track time. Our wristwatches and smartphones can let us know what time it is down to the very second, and so paying attention to the sun by day or the movements of the stars by night are really no longer needed. But tracking the calendar of the year and time throughout the day with these devices are so new that they barely register as a blip in time when compared to the long history of humans on Earth. There are places around the world that were constructed by people thousands of years ago to do this important tracking, and so many of these places are still standing today. And in this episode, we're going to chat with a couple of people who are going to share with us about thousand-year-old petroglyphs in Utah that were used for tracking time in really unique ways. Fremont Indian State Park in Utah is a treasure trove of thousands of incredibly old petroglyphs. And in recent years, John Lundwall discovered that some of these petroglyphs had an astronomical meaning for the indigenous people who had lived there. I get so excited when I hear about this kind of stuff because really it's a showcase of humanity's night sky heritage. Our ancestors were deeply in tune with the night sky because their ability to survive from one year to the next depended on knowledge of that massive sky calendar. They needed it to know when to plant and harvest their crops at the right time, when to hunt for certain animals, when to prepare for winter, and when to hold their sacred festivals and ceremonies. I visited Fremont Indian State Park in August of 2022 while I was researching my book about night sky experiences on Highway 89. Fremont Indian State Park sits along Interstate 70 near Richfield, Utah, and it's only eight miles west of Highway 89. So when I was in the area, I arranged a meeting with Elizabeth Nagengast-Stevens, and she's the curator of collection for the Parks Museum. She gave me printouts of where to find the petroglyphs that had the astronomical connections, She gave me some write-ups that were done by John Lundwall, and she gave me a personal introduction to the park and the people who once inhabited it. And then I set off on my own to explore these amazing artifacts. I was blown away by the number of petroglyphs I saw everywhere I turned. This park is truly a historical treasure. And if that weren't enough... It's also a certified international dark sky park. You can camp in the park's campgrounds and see a stunning view of the night sky and the gorgeous Milky Way, and there's extremely low light pollution from Richfield, which is 20 miles away. I'm thrilled to have both Elizabeth and John Lundwald as guests on this episode. We're going to chat with John first. John holds a doctorate in comparative myth and religious studies from Pacifica Graduate Institute, where he also teaches. And I'm thinking in another life, this must have been my academic path too. I love this stuff. He's also a founding board member of the Utah Valley Astronomy Club, and he partners with state and national parks in Utah to help run their astronomy programs. He's also the team leader of the Utah Cultural Astronomy Project, which surveys, records, and protects Native American rock art sites across the entire state. So please join me in welcoming to the podcast John Lundwall. John, thank you for joining me on the Night Sky Tours podcast from Utah, and Thanks I'm for looking forward me, to this. Nikki. Yes, I'm looking forward to our conversation about uh, some super cool petroglyphs. So, my first question for you is: How many petroglyphs are there at Fremont Indian State Park that you think are associated with sky watching?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I have no idea. There's about 3,600 rock art images in the canyon. We have found two panels that are associated with interact with the sunlight so and they're big panels and and they're quite sophisticated panels of the 3600 images we've got two panels that we've discovered
0: which is pretty cool because it's not like it's written in english to tell you this is about our interaction with the sky you guys have had to like figure that out
1: you know uh actually i was uh i started uh, my study in Fremont Indian State Park in 2017 I was down there to run a star party because they were registering for dark sky status and they needed to have some star parties I I'm a founding board member of the Utah Valley Astronomy Club and so we partner with state parks to help run their astronomy programs so I was just I was down there for 3 days to run a star party and I didn't know anything about fremont indian state park or their petroglyphs when i was down there it was my first time and i just so happened to walk up you know during the three days i'm um, star partying at night and during the days i had my son with me and we were just walking the trails and i just happened to walk up to one panel right when a triangle of light was going right through the center of the wheel motif and i i recognized immediately for what was happening Um, And so I got really curious, and so I, I, when I got back to Utah, Salt Lake City, where I live, I went to the library to do some research to see if anyone had written about that panel, and so I read the archaeology report of of the canyon, Clear Creek Canyon, but nothing had been written on it, nothing had been done, so I discovered the first panel quite by accident, (laughs) And, and had I walked up to it an hour earlier, it would have all been in shade, so I wouldn't have seen it. An hour later, it would have all been in sunlight, so I wouldn't have seen it. So I just walked up right at the right moment uh, to see the interaction that was happening on it. And it was significant enough where I, I recognize that cannot be happenstance. The, the sun shadow line that moves across the rock face is of course just caused by nature. But the uh, Fremont Indian saw that and they carved a rock art image around it using that sun shadow line as their template to create the size, proportion, and position of their image on the rock face. And so uh, they are integrating the sunlight into that image, cosmicizing the image with the sunlight. Well, I realized nothing uh, had been written on it, I called a friend of mine who's a registered archaeologist in the state of utah john McHugh, and i asked him to come down and look at it with me and uh next thing you know we've, we've been studying that canyon for several years
0: that is so cool because there's other places not just in the united states even but other places that use that same idea of of shadows that are cast by the sun to create calendars or other kinds of things. And uh, that's so cool that you just happened upon it and had the wherewithal to think that it could be related to that. And so have have you learned what that particular one means or what it was supposed to be used for?
1: Rock art interpretation is very difficult. We're dealing with a culture that had no writing. Uh, And so all we have is archaeological remains, and there's only so much that pottery and rock art imagery can tell you. So you have to interpret. We know it's a fertility motif because there are fertility icons in the image. You you don't look at Native American rock art long before you encounter (laughs) all the fertility motifs of the human body. So it's definitely related to fertility, but being that it's calendric associated with the solstice and equinox, I have no doubt they've integrated to their agricultural cycle, which is also involves fertility, right? We believe that the the calendar aspect of of the petroglyph is secondary. They didn't carve it to make a calendar. What they did is they carved an image that was related to their sacred religion and culture and tribe and and when the image is enlightened uh, in this case at the summer solstice there's a, a triangle that goes up through the center of this wheel that they've carved and through the center of the wheel they have carved little cupules and the tip of the triangle hits each of the cupules as it moves up and that doesn't happen that only you know that happens in the summer season it doesn't happen elsewhere so they've tracked that triangle of light using those cupules. In in essence, the cupules are literally catching the summer solstice sunlight. So they're imbuing the image then with the power of the summer solstice sun. So the image becomes cosmicized. If you perform a ritual there at that time, then the power of the sun at that time is imbued in your ritual. And then you relay that into your agricultural cycle or any other fertility cycle. And so It's a way of linking heaven and earth, cosmicizing the tribe, really. So the primary aspect of the use of their imagery in this way then is sort of a cosmo vision. It's a a, a ritual, sacred, religious activity that they're doing. The calendar aspects of it are secondary to that.
0: That's awesome. How old do you think it is?
1: Well, there's actually layers of images on this one panel. Um, I'll send you a picture. So so the earliest layers are pretty early. And probably, so the Fremont inhabited that canyon at least 300 CE to 1300 CE. So about a thousand year span, Uh, the the latest imagery, the, the newest imagery is probably 1100 CE, but the older, Uh, imagery. It could go back to 300 or earlier. Uh, There's some rock imagery just to the right of this panel that is really old. It's really faded. So that whole rock face is sort of a canvas of the sacred that was used when they first inhabited the canyon. So it it could go back. We have no idea. It it could be very early. It could be uh, pre-Fremont there too. We know that people have been going through that canyon and staying in the canyon all the way to 3500 BCE. Uh, so there's, um, you know, archaeological uh, hearth ash that's been dated to 3500 BCE. So it's been used for a very long time. Uh,
0: so you, you've mentioned this panel, and then you said there's a second panel. What's the other one?
1: Yeah, the other one is even uh, more spectacular. It's up on a high cliff face, and hiking to it uh, is, uh, for the most part, prohibited to the public, because it's, it's, it's not an easy hike. I'm a big guy, but I hike to it. Uh, we we uh, discovered that a year later in 2018. We were there again at uh, the week of summer solstice, and we were just hiking the cliffs, recording uh, petroglyphs. Uh, we surveyed the canyon, looking at all the taking the archaeological report and just trying to find all the petroglyph images and sort of get a feeling as to where each panel was, where it was oriented. I should tell you about that. But uh, we we again walked up to the second panel when the sun shadow line started to move down the rock face, and it's you know it's probably thirty feet high. The rock face and and the the petroglyph images are take about half of the rock face. Uh, So it's sizable. Um, But when the the sun shadow line moved down it, it perfectly bisected a series of spirals as it moved. And there's a couple of big sheep that it transected. And so when we saw it, we we said, well, that can't be accident. So we actually spent a whole year there uh, photographing how the sun interacted Uh, on that panel and it actually interacts at summer solstice equinox and winter solstice and the winter solstice interaction i mean this is unequivocal to us at sunrise at winter solstice you have to be standing at the panel because as soon as the sun breaches the horizon at sunrise a, a vertical line appears bisecting the sheep and and the spiral like someone just flipped a light switch it's really amazing And you can see that they have carved all the images on the rock face to conform to that sun shadow line at the solstices.
0: That's just so remarkable. You know, we're just so busy in today's culture being inside. Yeah. And there's just no connection, it seems, anymore with that. You know, maybe we're up when the sun comes up or maybe we happen to be outside when the sun goes down. Uh, But we're not typically paying attention to how that's interacting with the landscape around us and yet people who lived long ago and spent a lot of time in the outdoors uh gosh it's just amazing how i think you mentioned this earlier about connecting the heaven with with earth it's such a remarkable thing
1: to us
0: to get to see what they did
1: yeah it's uh We've lost a lot of that sensibility, not, you know, not without reason. We have iPhones and satellites and air conditioning, and I bet they would have loved those things back then. For sure. <laughs> but, Especially, uh,
0: you know, up there at Fremont Indian State Park, it's it's dry and it's dusty and it's warm in the summer.
1: It's very hot. It's a desert climate, though, you know, um, between uh, 900 and 1200, there was a, a climate change. It was wetter. The summer was longer. They had more precipitation. Uh, About 1250, a drought comes in and it's pretty severe. It affects the American Southwest in in different ways. But uh, And then it evolves into kind of the weather we have now, which is longer winters and uh, drier seasons. It makes it much harder to grow corn, which is what they were growing, maize, bean, squash. Uh, but surely we've, we definitely have lost a sensibility. We we only go down there, you know, we don't live there. So we go down there for solstices, equinoxes, sometimes cross quarter days, the days between the solstices and equinoxes, they live there year round. Mm-hmm. There could be solar interactions happening every month on different panels that they're watching that we would never know. Uh, because every month, they have a ritual. They, I mean, their primary calendar is a lunar one. So every month they're watching where the moon is. They're watching where the sun is on the horizon. They have agricultural ceremonies every month of the year, uh, even through the winter. And so there's probably interactions happening on many panels. We're just looking at, you know, the solstices and equinoxes.
0: I'm curious if any of the ancestors of the Fremont Indians have any surviving um like star stories or you know anything like that that's remaining
1: that's an excellent question so uh you know we've published a few i'm sorry review-
0: i said i said ancestors i should have said descendants
1: descendants right um <laughs> and, and or ancestors you know right. who are the fremont where did they come from and where did they go we've published a few peer-reviewed papers uh and when we write our papers what because there's no writing, what we're forced to do is to look at the ethnography of the later pueblos in the American Southwest. So that's New Mexico, Arizona, you know, the Hopi, Zuni, Tewa, those cultures, and we we read their ethnography, their traditions, uh, with the assumption, and it's a pretty good assumption, that many of the descendants of the Fremont actually migrated and join the Pueblos. And so the ancestors of the Pueblos, many of them will be the ancient Fremont. Uh, we know that there's a link because DNA uh, from a Fremont burial has been linked to the DNA of the Pueblos. So we know, we know that they migrated uh, to the Pueblos, but you know, the Fremont is a big culture group. It occupied pretty much all of Utah, parts of Colorado, Wyoming, Nevada, Uh, Different tribes living in different locations, we don't know if they spoke the same language, if they had, you know, it's not a homogenous group, It's, it's different groups, and around 1300 they do disappear abandon their villages, it's part of the collapse that happens in the American Southwest when the Pueblos are formed, you know, so many of them did migrate to the Pueblos, some of them probably migrated into the plains into the north. Another thing we discovered, which was really fascinating to us, the very first thing we did is we just laid out a map of the canyon and uh, plotted where all the rock art panels were. And when we did that, we realized they're all on one side of the canyon. So there's, there's the canyon runs east-west, which means there's a north side and a south side, and they've carved all their petroglyphs on the north side of the canyon and we thought that's strange, so we drove and walked and hiked the south side of the Canyon looking for any rock art couldn't find any. All the petroglyphs 3600 of them are on the north side so once we realized this I mean, clearly, this is significant, this is a methodology they avoided that side and did this side we began uh, recording um, we'd walk up to a panel and then basically just put our back to it and use a compass and record the direction it was facing, the azimuth. And uh, we did that to all all the panels that we studied. And when we did that, we discovered that pretty much 99% of them all faced between Southeast, South, Southwest. Even on the North side of the canyon, you know, the rock faces twist and you can carve a rock image any direction, right? Well, almost all of them face southwards and out of 3600 and you know there might be more because we haven't looked at all of them, but uh, you know that clearly tells us that there's a methodology here that they're purposefully choosing the southward facing rock faces to carve their divine images. And again, you know, our theory is they're orienting them towards the sun. In northern latitudes, the sun is declinated in the south. So when the sun rises and touches the image, it it brings the image alive. And so they're orienting it towards father-son to the cosmic powers of of the light. So we think then it's kind of a form of sun writing, these these rock art images. The, The ethnography says that they believed that the images were living, breathing images of the divine. And what better way to make a image living and breathing than to align it to a sun shadow line during the year, right? When that happens, it becomes a living, breathing image of the sun. We found that very interesting.
0: That is super cool. It's so so different than our current mindset, our way of viewing the world. And, and I I would suppose that's part of the challenge is that we have a very different worldview today than what they would have had then. And so trying to understand what did that mean to them, I'm sure is just such a challenge.
1: It's a permanent epistemological wall. <laughs> there, there are aspects of it we'll never retrieve.
0: You know, and I think that that's, for me, what I take from that is that a lot of the, the descendants of these cultures, you know, the indigenous, indigenous people who are still living in those areas today tend to still have a greater connection to the nature and, and just something beyond what most of us ever think about. And so I feel like there's so much that we can learn today from the people who you know, are connected to those landscapes, you know, back to their ancestors. And so-
1: Absolutely, as- absolutely. I Because they still do have a connection, uh, even though it's far removed from the sources of antiquity. Uh, they, yeah, they still have a, a profound connection. They, they still have a connection to their ancestors. Uh, ca- Caucasians don't really do that. Right,
0: exactly. <laughs> Right. Other than the ones that we've turned into heroes or villains. Right, right, right.
1: Part of the challenge is actually talking, meeting with the indigenous tribes and and getting their take. You know, this is sacred to them. Yes. And so it's, uh, I have a Western mindset of, ooh, this is curious. Let's poke at it and figure it out. Right. And that's not their That's not their mindset. It yeah. is sacred. You know, leave it alone. And so, you know, there can be tension there. But in the end, they have a profound connection to it that I have to learn from. and uh, and you know i'm I'm a constantly a student
0: and and that's got to be a, like a really fine line to walk between learning from them and then telling them what you're discovering of what their stuff means.
1: Well, it, you're right. A fine line. I, I, I don't even know how to walk that. I don't tell them what their stuff means. I'm asking them, you know, what they think it means. And um, I, I try to look at that with what I'm looking at. What we are mostly focused on is not the interpretation of the rock art imagery, but just recording uh, how the sunlight interacts with it, uh, you know, through the year. So that we, you know, we time-lapse video it so that we show it. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. You come up with your own interpretation of what it means. We're just recording this. It's impossible, however, to do this without <laughs> taking a few guesses. Oh, <laughs> as of <your> interpretation. <laughs> so, Of course.
0: Uh, but then, but you know, when you're also comparing it with so many other places, I mean, the Southwest is full of stuff like this, and so, you know, when you're comparing it with all of these dozens and dozens of places across the Southwest, I'm sure there's a picture that emerges, you know, some kind of story that you can gather from all of it.
1: Well, yeah, they are definitely um, cosmological thinkers. For sure. uh, Native uh, American indigenous peoples, uh, the The sky world was as real as the Earth world because, you know, it is.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, yeah. you know, they, they clearly saw the interrelation. When a certain star rose on the horizon, uh, that announced the sun and its position on the horizon. And that announced when you were to harvest or plant or, you know, some part of your agricultural cycle. All these things were connected and, uh, and that was all connected to, you know, a pantheon of deities and rituals and tribal life. And I mean, there's so many interconnections. This is where it gets so difficult for someone like me is because I'm just looking at one little aspect of it and you dip your toe in it and, and you realize that it's this big cultural complex that they are living You know, this isn't just a matter of study. It's not just sky watching. They are living this. Yes. Um, And and this is their way of life, their way of breathing, their way of seeing, their way of praying.
0: You know, it's interesting that um, one of the reasons that I am so passionate about dark sky preservation is because when I hear about these stories and, and how vitally important the sky was whether it was a sun casting the shadow or watching certain stars or planets rise on the horizon and things like that it becomes so vital to protect the night sky not just so we can see the stars for our stargazing enjoyment but because what we're doing too is we're protecting a night sky heritage the indigenous people are already removed from how can i put this in a sense we've kind of taken so much from them already and then when we pollute the night skies we we don't realize that there's another layer that we're taking away
1: yeah no that is true it's uh well it's devastating to to think about most people have never seen the milky way
0: exactly
1: they, they look up and they ask what is that <laughs> what is that they 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 have not the most people have no idea they know the moon exists but they have no idea what how it works you know its phases how it rises and sets and but it's true i you know um, taking the night sky away has probably has profound consequences and so just tell me your experience of looking out into a pure dark sky there there's something about that experience of seeing thousands of stars in the milky way band and shooting stars through the night that is transformative i understand it's an aesthetic it it is transformative and it and it does link you to a a world beyond yourself and when you cut all that out you've turned the entire earth into a cubicle where you are the center oh god that sounds terrible
0: you have (laughs) but you have perfectly described exactly what that is when i moved to phoenix after growing up in northern idaho that's what it felt like. It felt like going into this enclosed space. And now everything about life was about what existed in front of me, all I could see. Whereas when we go camping or where I grew up in Northern Idaho, I had an experience under some night skies in Albania. And those those moments where you're able to sit there and look up and you see a sky full of stars and you can spot a planet and you can see a Milky Way, it does. It 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 takes you outside of yourself and almost puts you in your place. <laughs> you sure realize enough. that yes, I feel like my problems are so enormous, but in relation to everything, they're not. It gives you a completely different mindset, a totally different mindset.
1: It invokes a sense of awe. Yes, and uh, that is a transformative maybe even a religious experience
0: john where can people learn more about you your work Wait, where can they find you
1: i have a website uh john k it's where you know they can see photos that i've taken of the petroglyphs of our different sites i actually travel the world so and they can catch up on our research there i'm currently working on a couple of videos that hopefully will be out in the next couple of months. One for Fremont Indian State Park uh, about those two panels. And so it's all time-lapse you know, photographed and people can see what we're looking at.
0: That's awesome. So I want people to click on the show notes. I'll put link, a link to that there. And then in the show notes, head over to the website because we'll have some images for people to look at. Don, yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate this.
1: Thanks, Vicki. Thanks for having me.
0: As I mentioned earlier, I met with Liz at Fremont Indian State Park last year. She has so much enthusiasm for this park, and she took the time to help me to get a picture of the people who once inhabited this area and who created these remarkable pieces of rock art. She's the park's curator and archaeologist, and she's a board member for the Utah Museums Association, and she's also completed several archaeological surveys across the state. She's also part of the cultural preservation team for the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. Her passion for history, Native American culture, and Southwest archaeology has greatly contributed to Utah State Parks. Please welcome to the podcast Elizabeth Nagengast-Stevens. So much for joining us on the Night Sky Tours podcast
2: to tell us more about Fremont Indian State Park. I'm glad to have you here. I'm happy to be here. So Fremont Indian State Park is actually located along I-70 in Clear Creek Canyon. Uh, we're about 21 miles southwest of Richfield, Utah. We're kind of that hidden gem along the I-70 stretch from Vegas to Denver, which is how we get a lot of our visitation. There was an archeology span site actually discovered here in the early 1980s during the development of the highway. And that is uh, actually why we're here as a state park is to protect that site, steward that site and um, protect its artifacts.
0: So when I visited there in August of 2022, you were pointing out this area across the freeway where you were showing me that they literally took the hills down And the stuff that they were
2: finding in there, tell us a little about, about that. The hill actually stretched quite far and when they were developed, so we were the last stretch of I-70 to be created. And so they'd already gone through a lot of the Southern states with I-70 because it stretches pretty far. We were the last section to be developed in the early 1980s. They came through and they really wanted the hill gone one out of the way of the development. But two, they really liked the dirt that was on that hill and so they wanted to use it for um, basically underneath the highway. Um, and so they started to dig into that hill and started finding artifacts. So they stopped all construction and they called in all of the state archaeologists, mainly BYU archaeologists and university archaeologists and they did what we call um, rescue archaeology or salvage archaeology, um, and so they excavated everything that they possibly could that was going to be destroyed, um, recorded everything, photographed everything, and retrieved those artifacts. And some of the artifacts that they were finding were a lot of pottery and lithics. They found a lot of structures, which not are all are not all pit houses actually. So some of the structures were. Um, like gathering spaces, they were granaries where they used to store food. But to this day, it remains one of the largest Fremont villages, almost fully excavated in Utah. We're about 90% excavated, whereas a lot of other Fremont sites in Utah are, you know, around 20% excavated. So we were able to get a lot of information from our site. So, t- can you tell us
0: who the Fremont Indians were and do we know? what they called
2: themselves,
0: because I'm sure that's not what they called themselves.
2: (laughs) No. So uh, the only reason they were called Fremont was because its first site, the first site of this type of culture was found along the uh, Fremont River near Capitol Reef, present day Capitol Reef. And uh, it was not named after John C. Fremont, but the river was, and it just so happened that it was found on the Fremont River, and archaeologists like to name things geographically, so it just happened to be Fremont culture. They actually were around about 600 to 1300 AD, um, In our area for Clear Creek Canyon it's more closer to 900 AD to about 1300 AD. They were basically hunter-gatherers that became a little bit more sedentary as the years went on. They were hunter-gatherers that were nomadic, but then they started to settle in these villages and build these pit houses and create communities. And they kind of moved into farming. So they were kind of our first farmers in a way. They started to grow corn and later beans and squash. They are existing at the same time as what people know as the Anasazi, but archaeologists call the ancestral Puebloan.
0: And so the people today who um, are the descendants from the Fremont Indians, who do they identify with?
2: So modern day tribes actually refer to them. So such as the Hopi and the Paiute, they actually refer to Fremont individuals as Mokwich or uh, Mokwitzi, And that means the small people. And so these individuals were small in our evolutionary history. They were, they didn't get very tall. Um, they lived in smaller structures and they didn't have the diet that we had today. So of course they're going to be smaller than us, but they like to call them not Fremont. They like to call them the names that I mentioned. And in all honesty, they lived 2000 years ago. We don't know what they called themselves. They didn't leave behind an alphabet for us, even though they left behind rock art, There's no alphabet to it, right? It's not like hieroglyphics where there's an alphabet to match to the figures. They existed all over the state of Utah, but then parts of Nevada, parts of Colorado, Wyoming, and southeast Idaho. And so um, we actually, as archaeologists today, believe that these were not just one culture, that they were actually individual groups, but they're put under one basic umbrella. We think that they had differences in language more than likely, differences in um, artifacts and stuff like that. And we can especially see that in the rock art, because in the Vernal area, you have Fremont rock art that looks absolutely different from rock art that's in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of people have studied the rock art and kind of grouped the Fremont in different groups throughout the state.
0: So what can people expect when they visit Fremont Indian State Park?
2: Um, So we're kind of a unique park. We have it all, is what I like to say. We are a historic heritage park. So we offer the archaeological site, we offer cultural programs that focus on the local culture and the prehistoric culture. But then we also offer camping, we offer hikes, bike riding, ATVs. Uh, We sit right in the middle of the Paiute ATV Trail, which is a very long trail with very many tributaries. And so we get a little bit of everybody, not just travelers, but we get a lot of people that are OHVing um, in the area or that are camping with us. We have a lot of repeat campers because they love our campgrounds. And then you guys are also an international dark sky park. Is that right? That is correct. So we got our dark sky designation about two years ago, over two years now.
0: So do you guys offer stargazing programs or anything like that at nighttime for your
2: guests? One thing that we do offer um, starting in May going to September is scorpions and stars. So scorpions and stars is a program that we pair the celestial with the terrestrial, meaning we get to see Scorpio, the constellation and the stars, and then we pair that with the terrestrial scorpion on the ground with us. And so we do a scorpion program. We teach you about the scorpions, their life cycles, why it's important that light light pollution you know and how light pollution affects the species and light pollution affects other animal species and stuff and then we offer night sky viewing so um out here you can see the stars very clearly the milky way very clearly and so we do a naked eye program and I teach people how to spot planets versus stars or certain constellations in the sky
0: that sounds really fun because I've, I've been over there. I know that
2: you guys have really good dark skies there. Yes, it's so much fun. It's very popular. The kids love it. And even the grownups, I have to say the grownups love it as well. <laughs> um, when we say scorpion hunt, people are like, you catch scorpions? No, what we're doing is we're viewing them. And so you go out with black lights into our hillsides and you look for scorpions and the northern scorpion is the one that we're viewing. So that's the species that's in our park. And they actually um, have bioluminescence. So they have this beta carboline in their exoskeleton that actually makes them glow colors. And so with a black light, you can actually pick them out really well. That's really fun.
0: I, I lead stargazing hikes here in Arizona and there's always a couple people who
2: carry a black light. Oh yeah. It's super cool but it kind of creeps me out at the same time. <laughs> I was going to say I was like I don't suggest if you have scorpions in your backyard to take a black light. No. But like yeah, I don't I don't suggest it.
0: <laughs> you do not want to know they are there.
2: <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Liz, where can people find more information online? So you can find more information about Fremont Indian State Park and the events and uh, dates of our events and details for those on our website at stateparks.utah.gov, and then you just use the drop-down menu to go to Fremont Indian State Park.
0: All right. I will put a link for that in the show notes so people can quickly click on it and get right over to you. Perfect. Well, thank you, Liz. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. you know, Utah is an amazing state when it comes to night sky experiences. You'll find some of the most pristine dark skies in the southern portion of the state along with quite a number of international dark sky parks. There are so many state and national parks packed into this area and most of the cities are small, which means minimal light pollution. The landscape of the southern part of the state is extraordinary with places like Zion National Park, Bryce Canyon National Park, Kodachrome Basin State Park and over a dozen others. I love the drive on Highway 89 that goes through this area both for its scenic quality but also because it's a terrific jumping off point to all of these places. As for Fremont Indian State Park, I highly recommend that you spend some daylight hours there so that you can explore the petroglyphs and check out the visitor center. They have an amazing museum there with artifacts from this village that's across the interstate from there. They also have some really fascinating books in their bookstore that you can take a look at to get a deeper dive into the culture. If you can camp, you should stay the night at one of their campgrounds. And it's okay if you don't have your own tent or RV. You can stay in a cabin, a modernized pit house, or a teepee. For more information about the park, you can visit stateparks.utah.gov, and you can search for Fremont Indian State Park. For more information about John Lundwall, visit johnklundwall.com. Lundwall is L-U-N-D-W-A-L-L, johnklundwall.com. And you can also get links for everything mentioned in this episode in the show notes or visit nightskytourist.com 60. That's nightskytourist.com 60. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.